News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. For more than five years now, B.C. has struggled with a public health emergency. Not the pandemic, but the opioid overdose epidemic. But no matter how much talk or what gets done, the number of overdoses just keeps getting higher. So the question is why? Is it because we fundamentally don't understand the problem that we're dealing with? Is it because we don't understand the type of drug that we're dealing with? Well, Sam Quinones is a journalist and author of Dreamland and The Least of Us. He's written extensively in his new book about fentanyl and why this synthetic drug is what has potentially changed everything. The new book is called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And Sam Quinones joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, good morning to you. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So tell me, what is it that you think we don't understand about fentanyl? Uh, fentanyl is, first of all, a synthetic drug not made from any plant, and uh, and therefore it, it doesn't need land, sunshine, it doesn't need water, it doesn't need uh, farmers harvesting it. When you combine that with the fact that the trafficking world down in Mexico, where the fentanyl is now coming from, started out initially coming from China. I don't think that's the case really anymore. It's, it's pretty much all from, from Mexico being made in Mexico with ingredients. From the chemical ingredients coming from China. If you, if you combine that with the idea that the trafficking world in Mexico has access now to ports, uh, basically controlling especially two ports on the western uh, coast of, of Mexico, uh, through which they can get all the chemicals they need, uh, you understand that the supply uh, of these synthetic drugs, primarily fentanyl, also methamphetamine, um, is now uh, being produced in in quantities that that are just simply staggering. They're just beyond anything we've ever seen. In the United States, fentanyl has effectively is effectively now uh, coast to coast, which has never happened in our in our lifetime uh, in our in our history of uh, drug use in America. It's always you know it's never been that one generalized group has covered the entire country with with an illegal with an illegal drug. Now right. they're actually doing it with two. Um, but uh, that's that is the the nature of fentanyl. Fentanyl is also a magnificent medical drug. It's it's revolutionized surgery. Many people have have been given this over the many years it's it's been around. Uh, but in the hands, in, it's, it's extraordinarily potent. In the hands of doctors, it, it can work miracles. In the hands of the uh, uh, drug traffickers, it's a catastrophe. In your writing, you also make a comparison. You try to, you know, draw a line there between the use of fentanyl, the widespread use of fentanyl, and and really trying to understand our homeless and mental health issues. Which, when you write about that, though, Sam, it sounds exactly like what we're dealing with here in British Columbia. Where do you think is that similarity? What is it about fentanyl that that perhaps makes that happen? Well, I think there's two things at work when you're talking about uh, the homeless issue and tent encampments and. And so on. One is fentanyl, which uh, which is very addictive and, of course, very very deadly. As I said, the other um, is methamphetamine, which uh, to which some of the same lessons of fentanyl uh, apply. You can make fentanyl. Is, I mean, sorry, methamphetamine uh, in enormous, just enormous, staggering quantities now because the trafficking world is getting these chemicals. Several years ago, the method that the trafficking world in Mexico 
had to employ to make methamphetamine changed. Since that time, the meth that they've been making is not only, again, covering the entire uh, country and dropping the price by 80%. So it's just an unbelievable amount of quantity. We've also found that this methamphetamine has been accompanied by rapid onset symptoms of mental illness, very intense paranoia, very intense hallucinations, delusions, inability then to live with anybody, inability to follow rules, uh, you know, kind of screaming at demons at three in the morning, uh, fixing TVs for hours and hours on end. And so very quickly, people become uh, incapable of living with others. Others can't stand them. And, and, and a lot of people lose their, their housing. That way, they very quickly become homeless. So you get this advancement as this drug crosses, uh, goes across, at least the United States, and I think up in, in B.C. as well, you're seeing um, advancement of not just meth, but also mental illness and homelessness. And with that, you also get the rise of tent encampments. Uh, tent encampments now, to me, feel very much simply like a barometer of the depth of your methamphetamine problem now. In Los Angeles, in rural America, it's happening all over. Um, I'm not familiar with BC's problem. Up there, well, no, but actually, it's, actually Sam, everything you're describing sounds exactly like what we, the problems that we have had here the last couple of years. Yes, and I think that's because of the advancement of this methamphetamine that's been coming out of Mexico in the last uh, a decade or, or so. Ten cameras, if you think about it, are actually kind of almost the perfect place for someone who is so kind of mentally unbalanced due to this methamphetamine, the last place those people are going to want to be. Uh, seeing, seeing threats everywhere all around them, the last place they're going to want to be is a homeless shelter. Second to last place is in an apartment or a house with somebody else. And what you're finding now, uh, over and over, I see this all across the country, talking to people and, who work in homeless outreach or in re- drug recovery, that kind of thing, is that people will be offered housing but will not take it. We'll prefer to stay in the tents, in the kind of tent community. It's a place where everybody, where you know everybody, where the drug is readily available, and people uh, under meth's influence are kind of afraid of being without it. And so you get this, the, these kind of very entrenched meth encampments. And along with that, I don't know about BC, but certainly I know in other places, you get a high level of exploitation, pimping, uh, of course, drug dealing, um, as well as just this very unsanitary, unhygienic kind of way of life. Sam, everything you have described is, th- is something that we have talked about or seen here, <laughs> tent encampments, and that idea that people, you can't house them even if you have housing available for them because they don't want to be housed. We've heard that before. They feel safer in the tent encampment. So Sam, how do we deal with that then? We obviously don't fundamentally understand the kind of brain chemistry changes that are happening as a result of these drugs. That's correct. And that's also what needs to be studied. What I'm presenting to you is the result of my street reporting, talking with people over and over and uh, recovering addicts, cops, uh, drug counselors, homeless outreach, et cetera, et cetera, all those kinds of folks all across the country. There still is not yet a study of this, this kind of methamphetamine coming out of Mexico in the last 10 years in terms of, you know, it's uh, rat or mice studies, neuroscientific studies about how this actually happens. 
it is happening no coast to coast in the United States because of just this vast, vast supply that is unprecedented. I mean, if you think about it, it's an amazing feat, ominous, but nevertheless stunning, that you one trafficking region of Mexico, basically the northwest of Mexico, has been able to, to make and, and smuggle so much of one drug, in this case methamphetamine, that they actually cover the entire country. For the first time, we have meth in almost every region of the country. At the same time, the price drops by 80%. And that's what I found. I'm living right now in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, the, the price of an uh, ounce of methamphetamine five years ago was $1,250. Roughly, now it's about 200 yeah. Whoa. It's that kind of supply that we're, that we're seeing, and which makes it also a problem because whether or not methamphetamine is the reason you become homeless, it very frequently is the reason you stay homeless because once you're on the street, it's so prevalent. Sometimes, as a guy told me yesterday, it's almost free. I was almost using it for free. It's, it's very difficult to get people in that state of mental imbalance out of the, off the street um, and into some kind of uh, 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 housing uh, situation that'll be stable if that person remains uh, delusional. The other right. problem with this methamphetamine is that it just it doesn't it requires more than just stopping using. It takes months sometimes for people to kind of return to, as doctors say, return to baseline, return to to what they normally were before the use of this stuff. Now, Sam, we're going to have to get you to come up here. So one, we can talk to you more and you can see what's happening up here too. But listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, My pleasure. Anytime. It's fascinating stuff. Sam Quinones is a journalist. His book is called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. But Let me tell you, he may be talking about America and his street reporting may have been in the United States, but it sure sounded very familiar, didn't it? I mean, we ourselves dealing with the same kind of epidemic up here. This is Mornings with Simi. What kind of impact does poverty have on babies? For instance, if you financially support a woman during pregnancy, will that actually help the baby's brain function? Well, this is something that was recently studied, and we are going to learn about their results. Dr. Sonia Troller-Renfrey joins us now, postdoctoral research associate at Columbia University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me how you did this. What did you do? Yeah, so, you know, historically, there's been a lot of studies that have looked at how poverty might impact the brain or how poverty might impact child development. Now, most of those studies to date have been what we call correlational. So you, they're looking at, you know, how does variation in income predict how a child develops? But what we really wanted to do was look at a causal question. And so, of course, you can't randomize children to be in poverty or not, but you can randomize children to get a poverty reduction intervention, and we did just that. So our, I'm a part of the study that's called the Baby's First Years Study, and for this study, we recruited 1,000 moms in the United States across four metropolitan areas. We recruited these moms from the Well Baby Nursery right after they gave birth, and we asked if they wanted to be a part of a study looking at child development. And when moms agreed, we asked 
told them or asked them if they would like to get a cash gift that was unconditional. They could use it however they wanted on a debit card. And critically, they could either get a smaller cash gift or a larger cash gift. And the small cash gift was about $20 a month for the first few years of their child's life. And the larger cash gift was $333 a month for the first few years of their child's life. And what did you find? And because... Yeah, so we are just finishing up our first year of data collection. And what we're looking at at one year of age is how a child's brain uh, activity or what their brain activity looks like by using a method we call EEG. And what we um, know about how the brain develops is that over the first few years of life, Children start with a lot of slower brain activity or what we call low frequency power, and they transition to having more faster brain activity or what we call high frequency power. And what we did is we compared the infants in the low cash gift group to the infants in the high cash gift group. And what we found was that infants in the high cash gift group had more high frequency power in some key brain regions. And so these findings provide evidence that after one year of monthly unconditional cash support given to mothers with low incomes, their infants showed more fast-paced brain, fast brain activity in key areas of the brain that support thinking and learning. That is so fascinating. So are you going doing more with this research? What's the next step? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have lots of questions we want to answer still. So one question might be, well, how did cash impact the brain? Um, and of course, that's a little bit of an indirect path. We think we're probably changing the environment in the home, but we have great data to sort of get at that question. So that's one thing we want to think about. But the next step is that we think that this might predict thinking and learning later in life, but why don't we actually measure thinking and learning? So we're planning to bring families back to the lab around their child's fourth birthday, and we're going to measure brain activity again, but also we're going to look at explicit measures of thinking and learning. Oh, so interesting. Thank you for telling us about it this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. appreciate that. Dr. Sonia Troller-Renfrey is a postdoctoral research associate at Columbia University, and they found that, you know, giving extra cash to low-income mothers helped to improve baby brain function. There's a lot more to learn about that, but sounds pretty promising. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk some history right now. What do you know about the Holocaust? Now, if you are among today's youth, well, the answer would be probably not enough. The team at Liberation 75, it's a group that explores Holocaust education, they did a survey to ask young people today what they know about that part of our history. The results? Disappointing, to say the least. Marilyn Sinclair joins us now, the founder of Liberation 75. Marilyn, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. First of all, tell me about the work that Liberation 75 does. Mm-hmm. Well, we organized a in, in the spring of 2021 to commemorate the 75th anniversary of liberation from the Holocaust, a two-day virtual age-specific symposium for students from right across Canada to teach them about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And what happened at that well, forum? We had 14,500 students attend from really every part of Canada. And we used that as an opportunity to do a survey to find out what do students think and know about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And we were able to do a pre-event survey and a post-event to see, was there any change after we provided Holocaust education to all of these students? 
Okay. And so first off, let's talk about what they knew. Like, what was their level of knowledge about the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. Well, we surveyed 3,600 students, which, by the way, was the first study ever done to gauge how students from grades 6 to 12 think about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And what we found was that one-third of students question whether the Holocaust was fabricated or exaggerated, or they're just not sure it happened at all. Okay, Marilyn, that's a pretty high number. It's a really high number. So how did that make you feel when you heard that? I mean, I'm shocked when I hear that. Shocked. In 2022, when there are so many fantastic Holocaust resources available, plus organizations, I mean, right in in Vancouver, you have the phenomenal Vancouver Holocaust Education Centre, and there are organizations across Canada that are providing phenomenal education. It's disgraceful that students actually do not know uh, about the Holocaust, or frankly, even more than not knowing about it, question whether it actually happened. Oh boy. Okay, so that was the before survey, right? What about the after survey? So the after showed a much greater rate of now acknowledging that the Holocaust actually did occur. But Simi, one of the things that really came out of all of this was that the students want to know about the Holocaust. 92% said they want to learn more about it. What's happening is they're going to social media to find that information. Uh. So we found 40% of students are getting their information on social media, and we all know what that means. They're getting misinformation and disinformation, fake news, and, and, and just absolutely false information. So, Marilyn, what does that tell us? Like, are we, are we failing in our schools then to make sure that we provide more of a basis for them to learn from? Mm-hmm. It's even bigger than that. We're failing at the provincial levels to mandate Holocaust education within the curriculum to ensure that every student who graduates from a Canadian high school graduates with a comprehensive knowledge about the dangers of hate and what happens when hate goes unchecked and we don't stand up for each other, which are the lessons of the Holocaust. So what do kids learn? Do we know about what curriculums mandate in this country? The answer is it depends on where you go to school and who your teacher is. So right now, Holocaust education is not mandated in any province or territory in right across Canada. So it's not on the curriculum. It is mentioned as a bullet point in certain in, in certain uh, provinces' curriculum around World War II and can- Canada's involvement in World War II, where it's suggested that the teacher include something about the Holocaust. So for some teachers, that means, you know, popping a movie into the computer, and it could even be a bad movie, like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and saying, I've now taught my kids about the Holocaust. Or you have phenomenal teachers who take it upon themselves to teach it in a very substantive way. So it's not standardized, it's not required, it's really up to the discretion of the individual teacher. It almost makes it sound as though we treat it like some kind of small part of World War II, when it was actually such a big part of So if you're teaching World War II, why wouldn't this be a big part of that? Because they're teaching Canadian aspects of World War II. So they could say, oh, well, Canadians were proud liberators of some of the concentration camps, which they were, and, you know, and build upon that. Or they could just say, look, Canada went into World War II. This is what the Canadian experience was. By the way, there was a Holocaust. Oh, so this time that when you did this forum then, so Marilyn, this was the first time you'd done something like this. What does this tell us? Do we need more of these? 
We absolutely need more of these, but we need something even more important, and that is we need a mandate from the provinces to say that Holocaust education should be compulsory learning within every school system in Canada so that every student who graduates knows about it and can describe it accurately, and at the very least knows it happened and what it was. I mean, we had, you know, 52% of the students didn't know that 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. I mean, there's very basic knowledge that isn't being transmitted. We need that to come from the top, and it doesn't cost any money because all the resources are out there, and all the organizations across Canada are, are dying to give this information to the schools and the school systems and to have it with in the curriculum. Do you think that with the state of misinformation and everything that social media does, that we're just not, we're not addressing it properly in our schools? Like we could provide a better basis of knowledge, but we're, we haven't adapted. We have not adapted. And in some cases, I understand that the teachers are intimidated by it. It's a complicated story. They're afraid maybe of teaching it incorrectly, where if it's mandated by the province, then they'll receive that professional development that they require in order to teach it. I think people are, you know, they also don't know how to teach in an age-appropriate way. I mean, we've been educating students from grades four and up. You can absolutely do it in the younger grades. Of course, you don't show them the horrors of the Holocaust, but you teach them the lessons of the pain of, of separation and how words matter and how treating other people kindly and, and defending other people's right to freedom is is the the way we make our society a better society for everybody. Okay, are you going to be doing one of these forums again? Yes. So on in uh, sorry on April third, had to check my date. We're going to a profess teach professional development symposium again free for any teacher across Canada and on April 28th we're doing one for the students all day all time zones okay and so where can people find more information Marilyn liberation75.org sounds good to me thank you so much for your time Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Marilyn Sinclair, the founder of Liberation 75. It's a group that explores the past, present, and future of Holocaust education. Check it out, liberation75.org. There are surveys showing that the before they had their forum, the youth that were going to be attending, as many as a third of them didn't really, they questioned essentially the Holocaust itself, which when you think about all the information that's available out there, you know, you wonder where are they going to read about this stuff? They're going to social media. No, this is much better. Check that out online and you can see the verified information, historical, and learn all about it. This is Mornings with Simi. How much spying by China is going on in Canada? Well, a government report on that says that Chinese espionage activities in this country uh, are a systematic campaign of intelligence, intelligence gathering, persuasion, influence, and man manipulation against the Chinese community. You can read more about this at globalnews.ca, but one of the reporters who worked on this story is Sam Cooper and joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Were you surprised kind of by the language the government used in this report? I... I I wasn't surprised by the findings, but we were we were surprised to find uh, an unredacted that is a very full report detailing sort of some of the things I've been reporting over the past few years. I can tell you, Simi, that uh, this it's extremely rare to see a Canadian government report that 
doesn't hold back anything and and says just as you said in the in the lead in here that there's a, a deep espionage campaign that seeks to control all Chinese Canadian communities every member of the diaspora whether uh, people identify with Hong Kong Taiwan uh, Singapore China whether they're you know Falun Gong members this report says that uh, members in Chinese consulates are being directed from uh, intelligence agencies in China to reach out their tentacles into the community and indeed uh, surveil people that they feel may be critical of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and also incentivize members of the community to try to get them to lobby Canadian politicians, pressure uh, Canadian society really to bend to China's will. So uh, it was a very, it was an extraordinary report about sort of the depth and power of this Chinese espionage in Canada and around the world. So how is this being done then? How it works is there are uh, officers in consulates in Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. Uh, They're called Overseas Chinese Affairs Officers. They are directed by something called the United Front Work Department in Beijing. And essentially, this is an intelligence agency that is both trying to gather intelligence from all areas of Canadian society, but especially Chinese communities and uh, politicians of all stripes in Canada. And uh, to give you an example of how it works, they will, for, uh, you'll remember, Simi, there were Hong Kong Canadians in 2019 that were really protesting for what they saw as China's takeover of Hong Kong. And uh, very quickly, you would see sort of clashes where uh, counter-protesters waving giant red Chinese flags right. would, you know, right? There were shouts, there were threats. So uh, what the report says is that it's these Chinese consulate espionage officers that will organize those counter-protests. They will threaten, for example, Uyghur Canadians who want to testify in Parliament about the genocide in Xinjiang, all of that kind of activity. And indeed, they will seek to fund and and influence parliamentarians or, or any member of government in Canada. And is there any limit to this? Is it, I feel like it shows up at the least expected places too. Like it does, whether it's a big story or a small story, they, there seems to be an influence there. They're really, uh, I think you phrased it really well. I don't think there really is a limit or we haven't discovered the limit. And you're right. You know, uh, we, we've seen the stories of, let's say, young Hong Kong Canadian university students putting up what they called Lenin walls uh in university squares, and then young students, uh, nationalists from, uh, you know, the more Beijing side would tear down these posters about peace. So there's no limit. We see it, uh, remember the, uh, the Man Wan Zhao trial, where we saw young students holding up what right. looked like right, signs made for them saying, please free Man Wan Zhao. Look, that is an overseas Chinese affair espionage operation. Those students are paid through various mem- uh, methods, and you can easily see it as a form of uh, espionage uh, fundraising money laundering that's going on. So uh, to, to bring back to your point, there's no limit. Anything in Canada can be influenced by these networks. So if the government knows, if the Canadian government knows this is going on, in what ways can this be prevented? In what ways can they fight back? Well, that's the real the, the real challenge. I, I can tell you, Simi, that we talked to community leaders from the Uyghur community, uh, Hong Kong Canadians, Chinese Canadians that, that don't want Beijing reaching into their democratic free lives. And they say, look, we've been telling Canada's government for a long time this is going on and how deep the threat is. 
And we, we of course, they, they say, you know, they believe RCMP and CSIS have the intelligence and the capacity to figure this out. Obviously, this report shows that. But what they fear is that the Ottawa, the, the current sitting government and, and uh, prior ones don't have the political will to push back against this extremely, you know, sophisticated and broad, uh, you know, uh, espionage network. And the, the trick here is that, again, these networks are very interested in funding Canadian politicians. Uh, I'll, re- I'll point you to, we, we, there was a big story in Britain a, a couple weeks ago, yes. ago about a British, right? An intelligence warning about a suspect involved in these very same sort of associations had infiltrated the highest levels of parliament making massive fundraising donations are we still sam do you think somewhat naive about this like or do you think our politicians are a little bit naive about this i still see a lot of naivety and uh i i don't know what it is because uh, again we felt this report was just extraordinary for laying out exactly sort of the things that uh, intelligence sources had been uh, anonymously telling reporters like myself for the past two, three years. This spelled it out in black and white. And, well, you know, the polls are saying that Canadians as a whole, you know, about 80% are seem to be leaning towards being very concerned about Beijing and these types of issues. But yet still uh, in the political level, I, I do see naivety or a willful blindness or, or dare I say it, we know there are some levels of corruption. This report didn't talk about corruption, but I'm leaning again on my intelligence sources that say there are concerns that Canada's politicians aren't paying attention because there is some corruption and that's something those community sources uh, from the Uyghur and uh, Hong Kong Canadian community fear as well. Wow okay so what has the reaction been like to this story then to this report? The report was, uh, the story was very well read. Uh, uh, it, it got shared a lot on online, which is uh, how we look at successive stories. I'm talking to you. I've talked to another radio host. So it, I believe that this, this report has opened people's eyes again, because uh, this is a, a Canadian government document in black and white, uh, again, saying that there is no country in the world that has such an aggressive an expansive intelligence apparatus in other countries, and it's really harmful that they, uh, China is attempting to control the lives of people that have moved to other countries for freedom from the regime in right. Beijing. I think that's one of the most harmful uh, aspects that this report really hammered on. Bashan, uh, Sham, just the way you summed it up there, and then you think this is happening in our country, and why aren't politicians, opposition politicians, any politicians kind of waving this around saying, I can't believe this is happening in our country. That kind of reaction hasn't really happened. Well, that's a great point. And Simi, let's look at what happened in the last federal election. A popular conservative uh, member of parliament, Kenny Chu in Richmond, says that he was uh, smeared and attacked because only because he suggested the type of uh, a member's bill that would force people to declare if they were working for foreign countries such as Iran, Russia, China, North Korea. And he was smeared in uh, Chinese language media as being anti-Chinese, even uh, inflaming racism. So that's an example of why I believe there's a level of fear among Canadian politicians that if they speak up, they too will be attacked. So uh, the more we talk about this, Simi, the more in my mind, I think we just see how deep this threat is. And really, uh, 
you know, again, these Uyghur Canadian uh, people say we're being shouted at, spat on uh, by organized counter rallies. Rallies when we go out and talk about our fears that our our our, our relatives in China are could you know could die. They're in prisons, and that's shocking. All right, Sam, thank you so much for that this morning. Thanks, Amy. Sam Cooper is a Global National Investigative reporter. Read this piece written by Sam Cooper and Stuart Bell. You can find it at globalnews.ca. But it is shocking in its breadth of what is happening in this country. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here we are at the end of the week, and we didn't want to leave you this week without talking about a good news story, a story about how people can help each other. And that's the one we're going to hear about right now, thanks to Jeremiah White. He was out running some errands, and he bumped into someone that he occasionally talked to, Orville Larson, who's an acquaintance, a Canadian veteran. And from what unfolded there, we are going to let Jeremiah tell us all about that because he joins us this morning. Hi, Jeremiah. Hi, Sammy. Wow. This thing uh, really exploded. It really did because I read about this story and I was really moved by it. And I thought, oh, we have to talk about this. So, Jeremiah, tell me about Orville, first of all. Um, Orville's just a guy who likes to keep to himself. He was out here, you know, minding his own business and kind of escaped from everything. I guess we both kind of did that and ended up here in the valley and just kind of bumped into him as a, like a valley fixture out here. And he um, got evicted. And then I ran into him at a store not too long ago and... Hey, there you are. I haven't seen you in a while. What's, uh, how you doing? Oh, not so good. I'm living in my car. I'm 81. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, you we thought, can't have that. Yeah, exactly. So, and when you say up in the valley, you're saying up in Squamish, right? And so he yeah, he had uh, been there a, a long time. Squamish Valley. It's about uh, 20 minutes outside of town here. So. Okay, and so you had this. What was your reaction when you heard this? Oh, I just it's, it's my grandfather, right? Like, you can't have that. I mean. We we have a lot of money in this town, not we, but like, I mean, the, the town's really gone through like a whole change, so there's a lot of money coming from the city as well, so it's like, you know, we can, we can do better than this for a veteran, 81 years old, right? You can't have somebody like that. No kidding. So what did you do? Um, well, I gave him a bit of cash that I had just to get him through and make sure he was okay, and then, um, yeah, we just went and started GoFundMe. I'd never, I'd heard about GoFundMe, so I started one up, and took a picture of it and threw it up there and just explained the situation, and people just started... Uh, pouring with their hearts on it. So, no, this is this is unacceptable. We can't do this. And uh, we hit about 2,500, I think, and we just decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to look for a van because I'm going to buy a van for this guy regardless. And it also came in over the next few months as I got research and GoFundMe as a business. Yeah, it might, you know, take a few months for the money to come in, but whatever, we'll, we'll get him squared away in the meantime. And talked to a couple veteran friends of mine in town, like uh, Corey runs Concept Construction, does uh, van conversions, and He's, uh, we, so we came up with a plan, and next thing you know, I checked back in, and we've got enough for the van. Like, the, oh, my God. I know. It, it was so fast, because I was following along here, too. So so you're going to use this money to help Orville, but as of right now, I'm looking at it, uh, Jeremiah, there's $41,695 here. So what are you going to do? 41000 That's yeah. mind-blowing. Um, well, I asked, I, I was, we, we, we batted it around, and I, the best option we came back was to just ask Orville. And, and it's funny because the first thing he said was, oh, I've got enough. I don't need any more. Just find another <laughs> veteran to help. I mean, this guy's got such simple needs, right? It's like in this, in this society where you're to- constantly told that you need more, you need more, you need more to be happy. This guy's literally happy with, you know, a van and a bucket. I'm like, no, no, man, we can do a lot better than that. Hang on. <laughs> okay, so what is Orville like with this money then? What are you going to do for Orville? Uh, we're going to set up a van. 
Um, I don't know if you've seen a van conversion, but it's very um, nice on the inside. Yes. It looks more like the cabin of a boat on the inside once these things are done. And so we'll have all those amenities. So we have a little space to cook, small fridge, uh, bed, bookshelf, anything that he wants. So he can build it out exactly to his specs. And then anything that's left is going to go into a long-term fund for insurance or any anything that comes up along the way. Uh, anything other than that, we're actually talking right now about starting a, a sustainable veteran society. Um, with, in conjunction with Corey, we're going to do a Vans for Veterans program. And we have one, so we have one of these vans sitting there that if this happens again, that we can, you know, zip, we have a solution, jump in here while we sort out the details. Jeremiah, this is unreal because for you, you were just having a conversation with somebody and look what it's turned into. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. I can't, it's, it's been a week. It's insane. And now uh, apparently I'm running a nonprofit society. <laughs> How did so that happen, go. right? Uh, <laughs> I love this. So is this, so Orville, did he didn't want anything else? Like he, this is ideal for him. Then he wants the van. He just wants something simple. Uh, I'll tell you a little story where I was, I was looking at uh, a toilet option from the van because it's really hard to get plumbing. So they have these little camping toilets, which is basically two jerry cans strapped together. And one of them, takes the refuse and the other one carries fresh water. And I was like, I showed him on, looked it up on Amazon. I'm like, look, it's about 170 bucks. He's like, oh, oh no, don't, don't waste that on there. I don't need that. Just, just to tell you what, you can get a bucket and you can cut out a toilet. So I'm like, man, oh we can get gosh. you a proper toilet. Come on. <laughs> These such basic needs that he just wants to help other people now. It's, it's, it's insane. Oh my, my mind. So Every where, time I talk to the where guy. is he going to like park this van? Where is he going to go? He would need a place to put it, right? He does, but he wants to experience, like, he's, he knows he's well into the, the, the wanting years of his life, the waiting years of his life. He's, he doesn't have much time left with his freedom, and that's what he wants to maintain. If he goes in, he, it's, he's of the opinion, if he goes into these long-term care uh, homes, then he starts to slow down. They close in right. on him, and he becomes that. So he wants to stave that off for as long as possible. So he's talking about going hunting and living off the land for the last um, bit here, like the summers, and... He has a distant uncle uh, out in the prairies somewhere that he would love to go and connect with as well. So this Amazing. gives him his own space, and he's not tied down anywhere. He doesn't have to worry about moving or anything else. He's just here, and he can go wherever he wants until, as his, as he says, it's time to move on to the next phase. Okay, I love that. So Orville's set, it sounds like. So now you're running a, a brand-new kind of nonprofit. Is it? What would you like to see happen here? Who, who else? Like, How can people get in touch with you? Uh, just through the GoFundMe right now, there's a link. Um, honestly, my inbox exploded. Uh, we're working on getting back to everyone, and we're basically generating a list of everything that people have been offering, whether that's um, stuff or expertise or legal opinions or experience. Such an outpouring support for this. So basically, we're going to... It's a big, big spreadsheet, so when we get a little further down the road, again, with Orville in the van as well, and we know his needs because there are very few, uh, then we have a resources to contact everyone and say, okay, hey, listen, this has gone here, but we're going to, you know, we got a sea container. We can put all the overflow, and then we can donate that to these organizations or these ones. Um, I've had a couple of people reach out as well that are non-veterans, so, and they need some help. And so with the Sustainable Veterans Society, uh, we have to draw the line somewhere, but at the same time, we want to do like a, a civil affairs branch where right. we can say, hey, this is, these people have contacted us and they need help. Yeah. So if you're interested in this, these aren't veterans, but hey, they could use a hand too. So, so what, Jeremiah, what does this tell us? Or what does it say about what's happening in Squamish over the last five, ten years? Uh, it's the same as anywhere. Everybody's 
it's the housing crisis and everybody's moving out of cities into smaller towns and those smaller town people are moving further and further out and I mean I think in the long run it's going to be good to revitalize small town Canada but this is also obviously a casualty of that process so we have to just be aware and, and not let things like this fall by the wayside, I think. Yeah, you're right. We have to remember this. Okay, so when is Orville going to get this van? Like He can get on the road or be comfortable? Uh, it's just past its construction. Um, the boys at, uh, where was it? Anyway, the, the auto guys, uh, Rock, Rockport Construction, Newport, Newport Construction, just made sure it was uh, mechanically sound. And I'm going to head into town later today and get it transferred over to Orville. And... At that point, we're going to throw a mattress and a heater in the back, and he can stretch out. Wow, he must be really looking forward to this. Yeah, he is. Is he surprised? Say again? Is he surprised by this, by what's happened? I know you're surprised. He's shocked. He has no idea. He just says, oh, I I had no idea this many people knew me. (laughs) Oh, that's not. They don't know you. They just care about you. It's just the concept of it, because he's been so used to taking care of himself for so long. Right. And he just, it's a foreign concept that people would actually care about him, random people that he's never met before. So it's, it's just mind-blowing. Like. It's mind-blowing that you were <laughs> able to teach him otherwise, Jeremiah. I think you're doing a great thing. So listen, thank you for joining us this morning to tell us about it. And listen, good luck. Hey, thank you. And it's, it's not me. It's you. It's people that are donating. It's you having me on the show and talking about this and just raising awareness. That's well, what's doing it. It's not me. Well, maybe your, your new nonprofit society <laughs> is going to raise a little bit more money now. So let's see if we can help you out with that and keep you busy. Thanks, Jeremiah. Hey, thank you so much. Have, Have a, go. a good day. That's Jeremiah White. He is helping out. He's a Canadian veteran. He's a GoFundMe organizer. If you would like to help out with this, uh, it's Orville Larson is the 81-year-old man that they are helping. And you can just go Google Orville Larson GoFundMe, and it'll come up. Right now, they've raised about $41,695. But as you heard Jeremiah say, they're going to take the money that they've raised. I mean, Orville doesn't need or want a lot of it, and they'll make sure that he's okay. Then they will see what they can do for other veterans out there. But boy, love hearing a story about people helping other people. This is a great example of doing that. Just a casual conversation that Jeremiah used to have, you know, when he would see Orville around town has resulted in this kind of wonderful thing now happening in that community.